Amen. Thank you all so much for leading us this morning in uh, worship of our great God. And we pray that uh, Christ will be magnified here this morning and uh, always uh, in our lives, our homes, our families, uh, and here in, in this church. If you're visiting with us here this morning, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for being here with us. I know many of you may be uh, watching live stream or pick this up later, uh, archive this message, but um, whatever uh, time you're watching this message, we're glad you're with us. Thank you so much for uh, taking time to, to be here with us, and uh, it means a great deal to have you with us on this Lord's Day. We are in, engaged right now in an exciting exposition of the book of Daniel, and uh, we've titled this uh, series in Daniel, The End Time and the Meantime. Because uh, the, really the message of the book of Daniel is a, it's a hope that produces faithfulness. Uh, the book of Daniel is a lot about the future. It's a lot about the end times, a lot about our future hope. But it's a hope that produces faithfulness in the meantime. It's a hope that motivates faithful living in the midst of a pagan culture. So we've made our way in this study now to Daniel chapter 6. If you want to take your Bible and turn there with me. Uh, this is a long chapter, so we won't read it this morning, but you'll need to keep your Bible uh, open there to Daniel chapter 6. And of course, this records one of the best-known, uh, best-loved stories in all the Bible, uh, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Now, someone I read this week called this chapter, The Night the Lions Were Fasting, and I like that. That's pretty good. But I've titled this morning's message, uh, The Lion King. Before we get into God's Word this morning, though, let's bow our heads in prayer together before the Lord. Father, we look to you this morning, our great God and our great King. You're our God, and we are the sheep of your pasture. We thank you that Jesus is our good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Father, I pray that all of us here this morning have put our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ and him alone that we will follow him faithfully in our lives and allow him to guide us as our good shepherd. Well, Father, we thank you for who you are and for all that you've done for each one of us. Thank you for all the good of this life that we have, Lord. We're blessed people. You've given us the good of this life, and you've given us the life to come. Father, we're dependent upon you for everything in our lives. We pray for our elections upcoming. Father, we know that you raise up kings and you bring them down, but you still call upon us to pray. So, Lord, I help that you pray that you'll motivate all of us to be involved in the political process, to vote, to vote the Bible, to vote biblical principles and convictions. Father, we'll vote with confidence that the person that you want to be elected will be elected in a president and senate and all the various offices. Father, we pray for safe travel for those who are away on fall break. We pray that you'll give them a time of refreshment, Lord, as they're away, and they'll come back refreshed and sharpen the axe to come back and serve you. Father, I pray for uh, those among our staff right now who are struggling with COVID, some of our church members as well. We look to you for them, Lord. Give them strength and, and give them uh, hope and courage and uh, just help them to, uh, to be able to uh, recover, Father, very quickly through this time. Uh, Father, we pray for Joel Maud, our pastor, worship pastor, who's moving this week up from Houston. We're so excited to have Joel and his family here and we pray that they'll get settled in this week and everything will go smoothly with their moves. So we just commit Joel and his family to you. And now, Lord, as we open the Word of God together, the inerrant, inspired Word of God, we pray that you'll teach us this morning uh, through your indwelling Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I like the story about two men who were on a safari and uh, they suddenly were confronted by a ferocious lion that was standing in their way. 
And uh, the first man turned to the second man, and he says, keep calm. He says, remember, uh, we read in that book about wild animals before we came in on this safari. And it said to stand perfectly still and look the lion right in the eye, and eventually he'll turn around and run away. Well, the second man says, yes. He says, I know. He says, I've read the book, and you've read the book. But the question is, has the lion uh, read the book? And that's a good question for all of us to ask sometimes in life, right? We're about to read a book of the Bible this morning that will help us deal with the lions that we face in our lives. We all confront the lion's den in one form or another in our lives. Uh, Some people face the lion's den physically. I mean, literal lions, if you will, Christians throughout church history. Uh, Many Christians today in various parts of the world are literally and physically martyred for their faith. They face the the literal lion's den. And we need to remember those brothers and sisters um, in Christ daily and to pray for them. Uh, Culturally, there are lion's dens. There are cultures that are uh, ferocious and predatory against people um, who trust in Christ. They oppress and persecute believers. Uh, Tragically, I I think we're beginning to see more and more of that here in our own country in the United States. As our culture becomes more secular and pluralistic, it's becoming more and more hostile uh, to Christians. And of course, we also face the lion's den spiritually. The Bible tells us there's an adversary we face who tempts us every day and who opposes us. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that word devour literally means to gulp down. We have an enemy who desires to gulp us down. We all face the lions of life. And this morning, we'll turn again to the life of Daniel as an uncompromising life in a compromising world. We'll look to him again as a model. And the message of this chapter this morning is a simple message, but it's a profound one that I pray uh, will lay hold of our hearts and lives this morning. And the simple message is this, by walking and fellowshipping with God every day, you and I can triumph in the crises and the opposition of life and thereby glorify God with our lives. Let me say that again. By walking and fellowshipping with God every day, you and I can can triumph over the crises and the opposition in life, and we can glorify God. Another way to maybe say it more simply is the key to life is a faithful daily walk with God. Now, I've got four simple points you can see in your outline there this morning to guide us through this chapter. We're going to see Daniel's distinction, Daniel's detractors, then Daniel's defiance, and finally, Daniel's deliverance. I know this is a story we all know well, but I pray that God will bring it uh, home to our hearts and our lives here this morning. Now, chapter 6 We left off last time and ended in Belshazzar's banquet hall. You remember the end of chapter 5, where Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, is having this banquet. The handwriting comes on the wall. That night he is slain, and he is replaced by a man named Darius the Mede. If you look at the end of chapter 5, it says in verse 30, that same night Belshazzar, he's the last of the Babylonian kings, He was slain, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom about the age of 62. So chapter 5 ends with the fall of Babylon. The head of gold in chapter 2 has now given way to the arms and the chest of silver. Now, one question that we need to answer here, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but who is Darius the Mede here in verse 31? And then you go to chapter 6, verse 1, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. 
Now, there's three views I'll give quickly about who this Darius the Mede is. Uh, liberal scholars today will say that Darius here is fictitious. Uh, that Daniel was mistaken. He got, um, he got messed up with um, who uh, Darius is. It was some previous Darius or some later Darius, and he put this name in here, and he's mistaken. Well, we know that Daniel's not mistaken here because Daniel is correct in this book on every other detail. In fact, as I mentioned last time, liberal scholars didn't believe a man named Belshazzar existed until they found the Nabonidus cylinder in 1854 over in modern-day Iraq. Daniel's proven to be true. So Daniel is, is correct on every other detail. How could he miss something uh, this basic and simple when he himself actually serves this individual? So I, I reject that view out of hand. The second view is that, that Darius is another name for Cyrus the Persian. He's the one who conquered uh, the Babylonian Empire. We talked about that last time. Many will say this is just a different name for Cyrus. If you go down to chapter 6 and verse 28, the end of the chapter says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. But some will translate that word and there as even so it was the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian, which in other words, it equates these two um, individuals. That's certainly possible, but if it is Cyrus here, why not just call him Cyrus? Why call him Darius? The best view, I think, is that Darius the Mede here was a man named Gubaru. We know from ancient uh, history that Cyrus, when he conquers the, conquers the Babylonians, leaves a man named Gubaru, he's sometimes called Ugbaru, in charge of Babylon and the, and the area around there. Um, and we, it also tells us that this man, Gubaru, installed sub-governors over this area, just as we find here these satraps and these people that are appointed here. We also know he was about 62 years of age, and we know he only lived about a year or two after that, which fits here well because he's not mentioned after this chapter. So that's the view that I take. And I, so in chapter 6, verse 28, I take uh, Darius there, or this Gubaru, and Cyrus the Persian to be two different people. But, but it could be Cyrus, it could be this Gubaru, either one of those is possible. But whichever is correct, Darius is establishing a new government. He's structuring a new administration. Now think about this, Daniel's in his mid-80s by now. And we're going to see in this chapter that Daniel's faith still needs to be tested. And one of the things that teaches me, and I hope it teaches you this morning, we never outgrow our need for testing and maturing. Wouldn't it be nice if when you got to be about 80 or 85, you were finished with the tests of life? It'd be a wonderful thing. But it's not true. We think that Daniel didn't need to be tested anymore by this time in his life, but actually his greatest test is in his mid-80s. So we never fully arrive in this life. We're in constant need of, of testing and, and maturing and pruning in our lives. So Darius establishes 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they be in charge of the whole kingdom. So he's dividing it up. Satraps are just governors. And then over them were three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that they might be accountable to them, and the king might not suffer loss. Probably this is talking about money. He wants a good bureaucracy set up, and he wants people over what's happening so he won't suffer loss. Probably here it means financial loss. So government bureaucracy is nothing new, right? And we have it here, this layered bureaucracy uh, that's there. 
Now, you'll notice in verse 3, Daniel immediately catches the eye of the king. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners. So there's 120 governors. He's among these three men who are over these 120 because, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So Daniel immediately catches the eye of the king, and like cream that rises to the top, Daniel is head and shoulders above the rest. And we see here that the king, Darius, plans to appoint Daniel over the entire kingdom, to make him like president or, or prime minister. And again, it's fascinating when you look at the life of Daniel, Daniel prospers wherever he goes. Chapter 1 all the way through here to chapter 6. Again, I love the last verse of this chapter. So Daniel enjoyed success. He prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of, of Cyrus the Persian. So Daniel distinguishes himself. Now Daniel's distinction in verse 4 now leads to Daniel's detractors. Look, a wicked world will not always appreciate your goodness. It won't always appreciate your efficiency and your, your faithfulness to God. The blessings of the righteous can stir up the jealousy of the wicked. We all know this in life. I think we see it. Success can multiply your enemies, and that's what happens to Daniel here. Daniel showed them up. And it's also possible he was standing in the way of them skimming off money uh, for themselves. He was keeping them honest. So they want to come up with some way to discredit Daniel. Verse 4, then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence or corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So they scoured the files. They ordered an in-depth security search. And there's no skeletons in his closet. He's above reproach. We could say about Daniel, he was a Teflon man. No charges would stick against him. He had a spotless record. Let me just ask uh, this about you. How would you like an army of investigators to go out in your life and begin prying around and looking around in your background? I like the way Steve Farrar puts it. He says, as we see from Scripture, the conspirators hired private investigators to dig up dirt on Daniel, but to their consternation, the report came back clean. His finances were spotless. He didn't hire prostitutes when he was away on business. He didn't owe back taxes. Even his internet history was clean. I love this. Daniel never had to erase his internet history because he had nothing to hide. He was not only clean, he was squeaky clean. Daniel was trustworthy, it says here. That means he was faithful. No negligence was found in him. In other words, he had a good work ethic. He was industrious. He worked hard. And no corruption is found in him. He's a, an honest, faithful man. He's a man of experience. He's a man of excellence. He's a man of ethics. He's a model worker and model employee. And we need to follow Daniel's example. Uh, put your faith uh, to work at work. Uh, serve your employer as a servant of Jesus Christ and do it in a manner that's trustworthy and with no negligence and no corruption. You know, it's been often pointed out that this is the first miracle in this chapter. The miracle of the shutting of the lion's mouths comes later, but this is the first miracle, the miracle of a squeaky clean politician. As someone says, now that's a miracle, right? The first miracle uh, in Daniel chapter 6. 
But if you read Ezekiel, who's actually a contemporary of Daniel, they probably knew one another, twice Ezekiel puts Daniel in the same company of Noah and Job in terms of a righteous life. That's the character of this man. So they couldn't find a legitimate charge against him, so they have to manufacture a fault. So his political rivals hatch a plot, and they plan to set him up. They collude and conspire together and concoct a plan. They they lay a trap for Daniel. Now, they knew they couldn't trap him based on uh, uh, what what they knew about his government affairs, so they know they're going to have to trap him based on something related to his relationship with God. But what's fascinating to me about Daniel is they knew they could trap him based on what they knew he would do. They knew the orientation of Daniel's life. And their thinking must have been something like this. If we can put Daniel in a position to choose between obeying his God and the king, we know that he will undoubtedly choose God. Now, you and I need to be like that. You and I need to be predictable Christians. We need to be consistent Christians. Other people should be able to accurately predict what you and I will do in a particular situation. Even Daniel's enemies know what he's going to do. He's that consistent and he's that practical. They know that if they put Daniel in a position where it's obey God or obey Darius, Daniel is going to obey God no matter what the consequences Reminds me of a story about Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart was a valued reconnaissance intelligence officer for Robert E. Lee during the Civil War. And he was a great value to General Lee. He ends up being killed near the end of the war. But whenever he would write correspondence to Robert E. Lee, he would always sign it at the bottom, yours to count on, Jeb Stewart. And I love that, yours to count on. And that's a question all of us need to answer this morning. Can God count on you? If you're a man today leading a family, can your wife and your children count on you? And if you're a woman here today who's married with a family, can your husband and your children count on you? Uh, Can your employer count on you? Can this church count on you? Is there a core conviction that controls your life? Are you a predictable Christian and consistent where people can predict in certain situations what you're going to do? because of your character. Verse 6 says, Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction. Now, Darius here should have smelled a rat. He should have known that something was up here, but we're going to see his pride blinds him. And and these enemies of Daniel use two tools. One of them is a lie. They come in and say, all the commissioners and the precepts have consulted together. Well, they haven't. Daniel hasn't consulted with them. So uh, they lie and leave Daniel out. But then they also use flattery. They play to the ego and the vanity of Darius, and they flatter him. We want to establish a statute and enforce an injunction to anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. So they come and appeal to his pride and they flatter him. And you'll notice the continuing theme of pride and arrogance in the book of Daniel of these leaders. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God. 
Daniel chapter 5, we saw last time Belshazzar humbled by God. And now again, we have Darius here who's going to be humbled by God as well. Some of you may have heard about this before, but in ancient Rome, when triumphant generals were paraded, they would be paraded in a, a chariot down the streets of Rome to thronging crowds as they came back triumphantly from great victories. But there's all kinds of things that happen in these triumphal parades, but among one of the intriguing parts of this procession was behind the chariot of the triumphant general stood a slave who would carry a golden crown over his head, whispering to him throughout this parade, remember you're only a man. Remember you are only a man. Remember you're mortal. It's a reminder to him not to be inflated with pride and somehow think he was God. But Darius here forgot that. He, he forgot that he was only a man. And so you've heard of king for a day. Well, this is God for a month. Nobody can pray to Darius, to anyone but Darius, for a month. And then verse 9 says, Therefore King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. You can imagine a kind of rose garden signing ceremony as this document is signed. And we read in verse 9, it's an irrevocable document. It can't be nullified or changed. It's, it's according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. You see the same thing in the book of Esther when a decree is made there by Xerxes that cannot be revoked. Now, this document is signed, and so the next scene is Daniel's defiance. The premier moment in this whole story is right here in verse 10. Daniel prays to God anyway. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Someone put it like this, the great miracle of grace in Daniel 6 is that Daniel, the man of prayer, was able to go on praying. In many ways, that's the great miracle. His response is to do what he had always done. Again, he's predictable. It was business as usual. Now, there's no flaunting of this. He doesn't do anything extra that he hadn't done before, but there's also no hiding. He's not hiding out somewhere. And notice Daniel doesn't question what's happening. Daniel doesn't doubt. He doesn't worry. He simply acts in unflinching obedience. And it's interesting here, this doesn't seem to have been a difficult decision for Daniel. Uh, we don't read about here in this passage of any inner turmoil or some anguish on the part of Daniel. He just simply does what he's always done before. One person I read this week said this, the devout are often the most daring, those who trust in God. There's a great verse in, in Proverbs 28, verse 1. Think of the irony of this verse, the righteous are as bold as a lion. Here's Daniel. Daniel's righteous. Daniel is bold as a lion. And because of that, he's going to be thrown in to the lions. But the devout, those who trust God the most, are often the most daring. The consistency of life assists courage. Discipline feeds faithfulness. Daniel here is a consistent, disciplined man, and because of that, he has courage and faithfulness to God. Now, we have an echo here in chapter 6, uh, an echo of Daniel 3, a literary parallel. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. Both are stories of God's deliverance. There's a difference, though. In Daniel 3, it was a sin of commission. 
They were asked to do something wrong. Here in Daniel 6, it's a sin of omission. I know I've told this before, but the little boy in church was asked to define a sin of omission. He says, well, those are the sins we wanted to do but never got around to. Well, that's not a sin of omission. A sin of omission is when you're asked not to do something that's right. When you're asked not to practice your faith in public as Daniel is doing here. And tragically, it's the same thing we're beginning to see in our country today in some ways where the government seems to be overstepping its bounds in some places, and freedom religiously seems to be being eroded. Ask not to practice faith in public. God commands us to meet. God commands us to pray. God commits, com- commands us to preach His Word, to baptize, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. You, need, you and I need to stand in this culture in which we live for the things God has commanded us to do. But Daniel wouldn't cave in. And Daniel actually puts his head in the noose. Think about this. Now, he could have easily easily rationalized compliance. He could have said, uh, well, look, it's only 30 days. I'll take a month off until the danger's over, and then I'll start to pray again. He could have thought to himself, look at all the influence I have. Think of all I can do in this powerful position as one of three men over the kingdom. It'd be foolish for me to forfeit this position that God has given to me. Or he could have said, well, I'll just do it in private, or I'll just pray secretly in my heart. Why make an issue of being seen to pray? But Daniel wouldn't stop for a month. Daniel wouldn't stop for a moment. And he didn't go into a private room to pray because that's not what he'd been doing previously. So Daniel is, his actions here are a foreshadow of Acts 5.29 where the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. One writer says it like this, Daniel is willing to die for prayer. When it came to choosing prayer and death or no prayer and life, Daniel chooses prayer and death. Daniel stands uh, for his God. And, And notice here in verse 11, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. There was no thought in the minds of these conspirators that Daniel would compromise. His enemies knew where they would find him. Again, he was a predictable man. They knew he would betray the king before he would betray God. They knew he wouldn't pray to Darius, but he would only pray uh, to his God. There's an old story, it's a good one, about Bill Moyers. He was a special assistant years ago to President Lyndon Johnson. He was a former Baptist preacher from East Texas. And he was asked one time to say grace before a meal there with the family, the, the, the first family in the White House. And as Moyers began kind of praying softly, the president interrupted him and said, speak up, Bill, speak up, I can't hear you. And Moyers stopped in mid-sentence without looking up and said, I wasn't addressing you, Mr. President, I was speaking to your boss, and went on praying. But the same is true of Daniel here. Daniel wasn't praying to Darius. Daniel is praying to Darius' boss, and prayer puts God at the center of everything. Prayer puts God in his rightful place as we go to him humbly, seeking his help and his deliverance. And regular prayer was a non-negotiable part of Daniel's expression of his faith. Now, notice three things about his prayer, the posture of it. He prays toward Jerusalem, open the windows toward Jerusalem. Now, why did he do this? He's acting in the spirit of 1 Kings 8. That's not commanded there, 
But Solomon suggested when the children of Israel were taken away from their land that they would pray towards Jerusalem because the temple was there. Now, at this time, the temple is in ruins, but Daniel is praying in hope for its future restoration. So Daniel is praying with the window open, praying towards Jerusalem where the temple is, where uh, the localized manifestation of God's presence had been. John Lennox puts it like this. He says, the secret of Daniel's life and witness is that he always had a window open towards Jerusalem. He knew there was a God in heaven who would hear him. So he's praying with the windows open to Jerusalem. He's kneeling down on his knees, it says. This is an attitude of submission and humility. By the way, that's not a bad idea to pray like that sometimes. I do that often at night before I go to bed. Get on your knees before God and pray. Bring your requests to Him. This is one of only three Old Testament characters who prayed on their knees. Solomon did, Ezra did, and here in this passage, Daniel does. Let life find us often uh, on our knees. It'll change our lives. Notice the petition down in verse 11. He thanked God and he asked God for help. I like the way the NIV puts it. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. I love that. And I think he was asking God for help specifically about this situation that he's in. Praying and asking God to help him. Look, Daniel's a courageous man, but nobody wants to get thrown to the lions. He's praising God and thanking God, but he's asking God uh, for help. And you know what's interesting? I've, I've mentioned this to you all before. But my prayer basically every night before I go to sleep, the last thing usually I can remember saying to God, I'll pray a bit, and then I just always end my prayer in some form or another just saying, God, help me. Just help me. You know, just everything. I don't know what all it is. I mean, there's all kinds of things I need, but God, help me. And that's what Daniel's praying here. God, help me in my, in my life. There's a, a story I read this week. It's, I think this will, hopefully this will encourage someone here this morning. It's a story from the life of C.I. Schofield, the editor of the Schofield Reference Bible. Um, I have my grandfather's 1917 Schofield Bible, and I could tell a long story this morning, but really that Bible in many ways changed the, the course of our, our family. Uh, but Schofield, C.I. Schofield was a brilliant lawyer. Um, he lived in Kansas, but his uh, career was marred by alcoholism till he came to, to Christ at the age of 36. And he went on to become a great Bible teacher, an evangelist, a missionary. C.I. Schofield is the one who had the most dramatic influence on a man named Lewis Sperry Chafer, who founded Dallas Theological Seminary. But not long after he was saved, Schofield gave a testimony based on the story of, the, the, of Daniel and the lions. And here's what he said. Shortly after I was saved, I passed the window of a store in St. Louis where I, was, uh, where I saw a painting of Daniel in the lion's den. That great man of faith with his hands behind his back and those beasts circling, circling him, he was looking up to heaven. As I stood there, great hope flooded my heart. Only a few days had passed since I, a drunken lawyer, had been converted, and no one had told me anything about the keeping power of Jesus Christ. I thought to myself, there are lions all around me, my old habits and my sins, but the one who shut the lion's mouth for Daniel can shut them for me. I knew that I would not win the battle in my own strength. The painting made me realize that while I was weak and helpless, God is strong and able. He had saved me, and he would now deliver me from the wild beasts in my life. Oh, what a rest of spirit 
that truth brought me. And I share that with us here this morning because all of us here face the wild beasts of our lives. Again, in his case, it was alcoholism. That, it may be that for someone here today, something you continually struggle with. Maybe pornography. It may be pride. It may be greed. It may be gossip. But you and I need to realize while we are weak and helpless, that God is strong and he is able. And the one who saves us will deliver us from the wild beasts in our lives. But you and I have to come to him as Daniel did. We have to call out to God and say, God, you come and help me. And that's what Daniel does, I hear in this passage as he prays to God. And then the final thing we see about his prayer is the pattern of it. Notice it says he prayed in the end of verse 10, as he had been doing previously, or some translations say, as was his custom. So Daniel didn't start praying to God at this time. He did what he'd been doing. Now he follows the pattern of Psalm 55, verse 17, that says, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Again, there's no command in the Bible in the Old Testament. They had to pray morning, noon, and night. But Daniel followed that pattern in the Psalms. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in my distress, and he hears my voice. But Daniel's life here is marked by discipline. Let me just ask you this. Is it your custom to have a time daily to meet with God? Do you have a time like Daniel when you meet with God? Maybe it's two or three times a day, but at least one time a day when you meet with God and you fellowship with Him and read His Word and you pray. Look, there's a great lesson for us here in this chapter. Don't build your walk with God in the storm of life. Don't construct your spiritual life in the midst of a crisis. It's too late then. You need to to be building it throughout your life so when the time of crisis comes, you're ready. Someone says it like this, Christian character is not forged in the moment of adversity. Christian character is revealed in the moment of adversity. It shows what we are. Danny Aiken puts it like this, Daniel's relationship with the Lord was not crisis-oriented. It was a consistent walk with God that that, 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 uh, people saw daily. And when emergencies or crises presented themselves, Daniel was already prepared to meet them and handle them. His daily communion with God had so shaped his character that he was ready no matter what. The decision to go to the lion's den had been settled many years earlier. The cost had already been counted. To be untrue to his God was never an option. Daniel wasn't having to build a spiritual life now in the midst of a storm. It was already there. And Daniel was able to make a withdrawal. Many of you uh, saw the movie uh, Sully. Uh, Some time back, it's the story of of Chesley B. Sullenberger III. Uh, It's the the, uh, landing of the plane there on the Hudson River in New York. It was called the Miracle on the Hudson. But many of you know on January 15, 2009, he was flying an aircraft. He was about 100 seconds away from LaGuardia Airport near New York City, and the aircraft struck a flock of geese at an altitude of only 3,200 feet. And he didn't have time to fly back to an airport, and he begins to look around at where to land, and he lands the the aircraft there in the Hudson River, which is a a very, very challenging feat. Of course, all 150 passengers and four crew members are rescued, and again, it becomes known as the miracle on the Hudson. And this movie's made about it. But the thing that struck me the most is one comment that he made. He said this, for 42 years... Because people ask him, how'd you do this? What was the secret to being able to pull this off? 
And he said this, for 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits into the bank of experience, education, and training. On January the 15th, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. And the same thing is true here of Daniel. When the crisis comes, Daniel has a large enough balance in his account to make a large withdrawal. And you and I need to do the same. You need to make regular deposits of faithfulness into your spiritual bank account. Think about this for every one of us here. If the Lord doesn't come today or in the next few days, all of us will face crises in life. We all will. We'll all face opposition in life. We'll all face difficult circumstances. And I can't imagine anything more tragic or more sad in the life of a believer that when the time of crisis and tragedy and the time of opposition comes and you need to make a large withdrawal, that it comes back insufficient funds. There's not enough there. You and I need to be building our spiritual lives day after day, month after month, year after year. So when crises come, those regular deposits will be sufficient to make a large withdrawal. Well, Daniel's detractors here ready and waiting to pounce. Verse 12, when they approached and spoke before the king about his injunction, they say, didn't you sign this injunction? It's according to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, down in verse 13, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Now, the king wants to get out of this, and the king realizes he's been duped. Darius is pro-Daniel, but his hands are tied by his own pride in making this decision. He's boxed in, and he has no choice. And so in verse 16, we come to Daniel's deliverance. The scene is set now for the part of the story we all know the climax of this story. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Literally, the word means a pit. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. The king went off to his palace, spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him. His sleep fled from him. So what's interesting here is the whole focus in verses 18 to 20 is on the anguish of the king rather than the distress of Daniel. The king's more distressed than Daniel is. He's the one in anguish. And someone's pointed out an irony here. The king fasted in verse 18, and so did the lions, by the way. But notice the Lord didn't keep Daniel from the lion's den, but he was with him in the lion's den and delivers him. The famed uh, London preacher Charles Spurgeon observed that it was a good thing the lions didn't try to eat Daniel, says they wouldn't have enjoyed him since he was half gristle and the other half backbone. And that's true in Daniel's life. Now, why did God save Daniel? A lot of other people in church history aren't delivered. God chose to save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He chooses here to save Daniel. Sometimes people see miracles, but most times people see martyrdom. Sometimes we may escape trouble, but other times we may not escape trouble, but we can never escape the presence of God in our trouble. But in this case, God chose to vindicate Daniel and display his power before this king and to deliver him. And down in verse 21, we have the only words of Daniel in this entire chapter. Isn't that interesting? This is the only words of Daniel. 
Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Notice Daniel doesn't say much, no details, no elaboration, no telling about the night in the lion's den to satisfy our curiosity. What happened is supernatural, but his record of it here is not sensational. But Daniel emerges in verse 23 without a scratch. No injury whatsoever is upon him. Now, some will say this wasn't a miracle. They'll say, well, the lions weren't hungry that night, or that maybe Darius fed them ahead of time so that they wouldn't attack Daniel. But I think the Lord includes verse 24 here to to dispute that or dispel that idea. By the way, look at verse 24. Talk about a plan that backfired. Then the king gave orders, and they brought those who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. These these leaders back then, you didn't want to kill somebody and have their kids come after you later. You got rid of all of them. And they did not reach the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Again, this is dispelling the idea that these lions were were well-fed or too old or whatever. No, they're voracious. They devour these people before they even hit the ground. And then the story ends here like the end of Daniel chapter 2 and the end of Daniel chapter 4 with a pagan king glorifying God. Verse 25, then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he's the living God and enduring forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It ends like Daniel 2 and Daniel 4. And again, the point of it all is to glorify God. Through this, God is put on a display. Let me ask you a question this morning as we close here. Are you making regular deposits in your spiritual account through fellowship with God and prayer? Do you have a time and a place to meet with God every day? When it comes time in your life to make a large withdrawal, when a crisis or opposition comes, are there going to be sufficient funds? You and I need to draw near to God every day and establish a pattern of prayer and fellowship with God like Daniel did, to develop a discipline of devotion, a rhythm of righteousness uh, in our lives so that we can be faithful when times of crisis come and opposition comes, so that through that ultimately that God, our great God, can be glorified and magnified in it. Let me just give one final thought here as we close. Back in the early church, many people in the early church noticed parallels between Daniel and Jesus. Remember, a group of people conspire against Daniel to kill him out of jealousy. It's the same thing with Jesus. Both are put into a pit. Daniel's put in the lion's den. Jesus is put in the empty tomb. They're both sealed with a signet ring, and a stone is rolled in front, if you read the story. And angels appear, and the stone is rolled away. And here's why one person described this. This ministered to me this week when I read it, so I'll close with this this morning. The person says this, this story foreshadows something greater. Jesus, like Daniel, was falsely accused by a powerful clique of conspirators. Like Daniel, he was condemned. 
Unlike Daniel, no angel appeared to prevent his going to the cross. Yet because he was not only was the innocent victim like Daniel, but the everlasting king of whom Daniel speaks, the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, angels appear at another pit, another stone is rolled away, and death is rendered impotent. Jesus is the greater Daniel. He's the one, the, the only innocent one who died in our place on the cross, was put into a tomb, but the stone is rolled away, and he's alive forevermore to give life to all who will come and who will trust in him and believe in him. So if you've never done that, that's what you need to do this morning. He'll give life and forgiveness to you if you'll come and trust in Jesus, the greater Daniel, who died for us, rose again from the grave. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, the greater Daniel, who died for us, but came out of the pit alive. The stone was rolled away, and who gives life to all who will trust in him. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never put their hope and their trust in Jesus alone, they might do that even now. Father, for all of us here this morning, I pray that you'll empower us and energize us to make daily deposits into our spiritual account so when crises or opposition come, we'll have sufficient resources to make a large withdrawal so that by that you can be glorified and we can put you on display in this world around us that needs to see you so desperately. The people around us may recognize that you alone are the true and the living God. Oh, Father, use us in that way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.